Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 313, How to Make a Martyr. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Allison, Noah, and Benedict for signing up already. Quote, No man can make himself king, but the people have the choice to choose as king whom they please. But after he is consecrated as king, he then has dominion over the people, and they cannot shake his yoke from their necks. End quote. So reads the homily written by the famed writer Elfric. He was writing for his patrons, Elderman Athelweird the Chronicler, and his son, Athelmar. And he was writing this about a decade or so after the death of King Edward. Now, as you might remember, Elderman Athelweird was almost certainly a supporter of King Edward. And here we have his chosen scribe and holy man proclaiming that a consecrated king has, quote, dominion over the people and they cannot shake his yoke from their necks, end quote. But back in 978, someone, or several someones, had managed to shake the yoke of Edward's rule. And they did so violently, as version A of the Chronicle states, that the king had been killed. The word they used to talk about this was offslagen, to be killed or slain. It's a word that can describe death in battle, but it also can describe death in a feud, or even an assassination. This word appears in our records numerous times over the centuries of Anglo-Saxon rule. And that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, these were the Anglo-Saxons. They were going to kill and slay people. And so here we have version A of the Chronicle, the oldest form of the Chronicle left, and therefore the record that was written closest in time to the event of Edward's slaying. But while the record is clear that the king was killed, the scribes of version A don't tell us how he was slain nor by whom. And you'd think those would be details they might want to record. But instead, it just says King Edward was off Slagan, and that his brother, Athelred, succeeded him to the throne. But before we assume that this is proof positive that there was a premeditated murder, you should also know that off Slagan can also be used to describe a death that comes as a result of a misunderstanding. For example, if you remember back to the late 8th century, Long before the Vikings were a known threat, there was a reeve who met with a crew of Scandinavians. This crew had just landed on the shores of Dorset, and the reeve thought they'd come to engage in unauthorized trade. So, as was his duty, he ordered that the Scandinavians be brought to the king's hall. The Scandinavians, not knowing why they were suddenly being detained, responded exactly how you might expect a shipload of off-season Vikings would respond. And the situation quickly got out of hand, and the reeve was killed in the ensuing confusion. And the word that they used for that event was the same word that they used for King Edward. Offslagen. When King Edmund met his demise in his own feasting hall in that weird fight with a known criminal, the records again used that same word. Offslagen. So the word choice here is telling us something regarding Edward's death, but it's hard to know exactly what that is. And that's unfortunate because, as I said, version A is our oldest record of the fall of Edward. And let's be honest here, I think it's actually the clearest record we're going to get of what happened. 
Now, students of British history might be surprised by what I just said, because there's a much more popular set of stories that surround the death of King Edward. And often, while learning about the reign of Athelred Unred, people usually will hear a salacious, damning story about the fall of Edward. Many of these stories include a wide cast of characters, and most notably, Edward's stepmother, and Athelred's mother, Queen Elfthrith. And actually, these stories were the same ones that I was taught back before I began serious research into these decades. But what I discovered as I really dug into these stories, as I looked into where they were written and when, was that these tales had a lifespan of their own. It's possible that the stories reflect the truth. Anything's possible. But the way that the tales developed over time, and the environment in which they developed, is a story unto itself. It takes us from Edward's death all the way to over 150 years later, with Edward being remembered as a martyr. And what happens in between that time and the evolution of the stories of this event of Edward's slaying tells us quite a bit about the king himself, his ill-fated brother, medieval religion, and the cutthroat political intrigue that surrounded them all. And we start with what we know with what version A of the Chronicle, our oldest record of this, tells us. King Edward was killed. Off Slagan. Commit that to memory. There's no mention of guilty parties, no mention of location, timing, method, nothing. He was just killed. And for over two decades, that is all we have. No one else writes about it. The record on this goes quiet. For example... King Athelred issues a charter six years later in 984, and it's a charter for Shaftesbury Abbey. Now, in this charter, Edward isn't mentioned, not as a king, not as a martyr, not even as Athelred's brother. And that strikes some scholars as odd, because Shaftesbury Abbey was supposed to be the resting place of Edward's body. But he's completely ignored. Apparently, he'd been killed, and everyone else was just moving on maybe wondering what the ducks were doing. In fact, it wasn't until about the year 1000, 22 years after the death of the king, that we get some additional details thanks to our old friend, Bert Firth of Ramsey. In his life of St. Oswald, he includes some material about King Edward, which appears to fill in a few of the gaps. Now, as we've discussed in previous episodes, lives of saints weren't exactly the most factually rigorous of documents. Furthermore, we should remember that about 22 years had passed between the king's death and Bert Firth's writings. 978 and 1000 might seem pretty close together from our vantage point, but 22 years is a long time, and the human brain is notoriously bad at remembering things. It turns out our memories are surprisingly plastic. As people remember events over time, their memories are likely to subtly change. And that's because every time you remember something, you're actually remembering the last time that you remember it. So the hard drive of your mind keeps on getting written over. And that's just in one individual, but this is happening society-wide. So as the years passed and people told stories around the fireplace, things inevitably were going to shift. And it turned out that a lot had happened in the course of those 22 years. Really big events had taken place on the island. And the way that people understood the events of the past had likely changed right along with the changes in their lives. And so, after those 22 years had passed, 
Here we find Bertfirth writing about the death of King Edward, and he takes great pains to compare King Edward to Christ himself. So, in the life of St. Oswald, Bertfirth tells us that Edward's succession was feared by many due to his rage. And he also tells us about how the nobility preferred his more gentle brother, Athelred. But he continues and gives us an account of the day when Edward was killed. Bertfirth tells us that the king missed his family, and so he went to visit his brother Athelred and his stepmother Aelthrith, along with a small retinue. A small retinue was all he needed, because he trusted in the fact that God would never allow someone to lay their hands upon an anointed king. The young monarch also placed a great deal of faith in his own strength of arms, something for which he was well known. And so, with his small band, he reached his brother's home as evening approached. What he didn't know was that on that estate, there were zealous thanes who were conspiring against him. As the king rode up, the nobles and most important men of Queen Aelthrith's estate came out to meet him. This greeting of the king as he entered the estate was right and proper, and the men surrounded Edward on all sides. Then one grasped the king's right hand, as if he was going to kiss it. Then another roughly seized his left hand. The king, recognizing the sudden danger he was in, shouted out, and the conspirators stabbed him. Edward fought to free himself and jumped from his horse, but it was already too late. There would be no escape, and the thanes quickly finished the job. Bertfirth compares this to Christ's condemnation, and I'll spare you the full details because he gets pretty anti-Semitic with the whole thing, but Bertfirth leaves no mysteries in how he writes about the killing. This was the scene of Edward's martyrdom, and frankly, that was a bit of a stretch, because he doesn't claim that Edward was attacked for his beliefs or his religion. So instead, he just seems to hang it all on something, something, Edward was like Christ, and then he goes and compares the killers to the Jewish people. Because Middle Ages. Anyway, after the king was dead, Bertford tells us they carried his body to the house of, quote, a certain unimportant person, end quote, and left him with, quote, a mean covering waiting for the light of day, end quote. So all of this sounds very much like a shallow, unmarked grave in the backyard to me. And just like that, Bertfirth fills in some of the gaps. We now have the time, evening. We know vaguely the place, Athelred and Aelthrith's estate. And we know it was a conspiracy. But he still doesn't tell us who did it. He blames it on, quote, zealous thanes, end quote, but he declines to name them. However, Bertfirth's story does continue. He says that a year later, Elderman Elf Hera came to the region with, quote, a multitude of people, end quote. Now, you've heard of Elderman Elf Hera of Mercia before. He was the elderman who'd been riding through the country, shutting down monasteries and ousting monks during the previous succession crisis. Well, when Elf Hera arrived at the burial site, he demanded that Edward's body be exhumed. Once revealed, the men discovered that Edward was perfectly preserved and had no sign of decay or injury. Now, you'll remember that this was the same state that his father, King Edward, was found in. Apparently, vampirism ran in the family. As you might expect, everyone in attendance was amazed by what they saw, and they reverently washed the body clothed them in finery, and put him in a coffin befitting a station. The gathered nobles then carried him on their shoulders to be honorably buried. 
Afterwards, they held masses and enacted celebration for the health of his soul, on orders of Elf Hera. As for King Edward's killers, Burtfirth reports that they went on unpunished, though he does assure us that these murderers would definitely be punished in the next life, because in this one, they are living in pampered luxury, drinking booze, and not feeling any guilt about what they did. Though something interesting comes out when he's talking about all of this. Burtfirth mentions that one man was blinded some time later for some other offense, and he sees that as a just comeuppance and a sign that God was paying attention. And this inclusion might actually give us a clue into the true identity of one of the conspirators. Because assuming that Burtfirth is correct here, we actually know that a man named Elfgar, who was the son of Elderman Elfric of Hampshire, was blinded for an undocumented offense several years before Burtfirth wrote this account, in 993. And if Elfgar was one of Edward's killers, that might give us an explanation for why there's no record of any sort of retribution. If the people who killed King Edward weren't only nobles, but were actually some of the most powerful individuals in the kingdom and members of key dynasties, well, new King Athelred might not have been politically able to punish the assassins for their crime, even if he wanted to. So what we're told is the king was assassinated on the doorstep of his younger brother's estate by powerful nobles who left his body in a shallow grave to rot. And as salacious as this Michael Bay recut of Edwards off Slagan is, Burtforth doesn't place the blame on the future king Athelred, who would have been about 10 years old at this point. Nor does he blame Queen Aelfthrith. And that's important. Anyway, the whole story continues from there. So, Burford tells us that miracles began to appear at Edward's tomb in 889 or 990. And miracles are the sign of a saint. Now, England has a long history of turning their murdered Anglo-Saxon nobility into saints. If you're an athling or a king, especially if you're a young one and you died violently, you had a pretty good chance of getting your own saintly cult. Provided, of course that there were people who wanted to make that happen. After all, you were dead. To become a saint, you need living people willing to bankroll your sainthood. And about 12 years after his death, it looks like Edward finally had some people looking to do exactly that. And, you know, on the one hand, fair enough. Absence does make the heart grow fonder. But there was something far more pressing that was occurring at this point in time that likely led to this renewed interest in Edward's death. The Vikings were back. And I won't spoil things too much for you, but what you need to know right now is that the timing of the claims of Edward's sanctity just so happened to coincide with an incredibly sharp uptick in Scandinavian violence. Like, really, really bad violence. In fact, shortly after King Edward was killed, it signaled a sort of starting point for England suffering a lot of problems with Scandinavian armies. And keep in mind the era that we're in. To the Anglo-Saxons, these sorts of events weren't the result of geopolitical motivations, nor the result of economic pressures or cultural or social expectations. There was one very clear and very obvious reason why a bunch of violent pagan pirates were coming to England. God was mad. And if the fury of the Almighty is bearing down on you in the form of Sven the Blood-Soaked, you might look back on that king who got stabbed on his horse a few years ago and wonder if, maybe, that had been the wrong call and it led to a curse. 
And here we have Burtfirth telling us that 12 years after Edward's death, the king started pulling off magic tricks from beyond the grave. And you have to wonder why. Well, one year before the miracles supposedly began, we're told that the Thane of Devonshire was slain, along with a great many men. This Viking threat, which had begun shortly after Athelred took the throne, wasn't abating. And it seemed to be getting worse. And right on cue, we have the cult of Edward the Martyr, complete with miracles happening at Shaftesbury. And so suddenly, Edward and Shaftesbury become major focal points. And if you remember back to Athelred's charter from six years earlier, that's a bit surprising, right? I mean, based on that charter, Edward's tomb wasn't even worth mentioning. That's how minor his presence was, even in his brother's own charters. And yet, all of a sudden, once the attacks started getting really out of control, people started to pay a bunch of attention to his tomb. And apparently, upon realizing that he was at the center of a crowd and not wanting to disappoint them, Edward started doing some serious David Copperfield shit. And that, to me, is a bit suspicious. Furthermore, Edward wasn't the only one getting a cult. At about this same time, the cult of St. Edith was also established. And this was the same Edith who was born from King Edgar's year-long tryst with the nun Wolfthrith. The same Edith who was Edward's and Athelred's half-sister. The records also tell us that King Athelred himself took lands that he had acquired from his mother, Queen Elfthrith, and their lands in Berkshire, and they used those lands to establish a monastery in Edward's name. Another tradition tells us of how Athelred endowed a church in Gloucestershire at Stowe-on-the-Wald, and this was also in honor of his late brother, Edward. Now, of course, it's possible that King Athelred did all of this out of the affection that he held for his brother. If the two were close, it wouldn't be surprising that Athelred would want to honor Edward after his death. It also wouldn't be surprising if he wanted to honor Edward if he was feeling kind of guilty about the way that he got the crown. Additionally, we have to take into account Anglo-Saxon culture. Edward had died, at least according to Burtfirth, at the hands of thanes who were in Athelstead's estate. Culturally, as the holder of that estate, Athelred might have actually owed a weregild. But because he was king... And because Edward left no heirs, who does he pay that man prize to? Creating and supporting a cult might have been a way to satisfy Athelred's responsibility as the holder of the estate and the ultimate beneficiary of the killing. But even so, that's a remarkable amount of activity to take place all at once. Especially considering the fact that Athelred had gone over a decade without doing much of anything in his brother's memory. Nor did he punish any of the thanes who were allegedly involved. And if you think this was just because he wasn't old enough before, Athelred at this point would have been fully 22 years old. Age hadn't been a barrier for him for quite some time. Additionally, Queen Aelthrith was quite alive at this point and appears to have been involved or at least supportive of these actions. So I think the delay in activity is unlikely to have been her fault either. Based on the record, I think it's quite clear that, given how England was greatly imperiled at this point, the reason why we suddenly have this explosion of interest in forming a cult of Edward as a martyr was because the king and his witan were looking to halt the Scandinavian threat through both military but also spiritual means. They were trying to make friends with God, and quite possibly also trying to make friends with any remaining supporters of Edward because this really was turning into an all-hands-on-deck situation. Sometime later, 
allegedly in 1008, Athelred legally dictated that March 18th shall be the Feast of Edward the Martyr all throughout England. And that may be the truth, but this story comes to us from yet another source. Ostensibly, it comes to us from Athelred's code. Maybe. But also maybe not. While it's claimed to come from Athelred's code, the source for that code isn't Athelred himself. Instead, it comes to us from his rival, Knut. And why would Knut be promoting stories, or maybe even starting rumors, that Athelred was dedicating feasts to his dead, martyred brother? Well, one thought is that it's a pretty decent way to undercut the legitimacy of Athelred, and, by extension, the entire House of Wessex. I mean, it definitely would remind everyone that Athelred had only come to the throne because his brother had been murdered at his estate. At the very least, it looks shady, and that's good politics. Consequently, I don't know if Athelred actually did do that. But the fact remains that 12 years after Edward's death, at about 990, we see the active development of a cult dedicated to his memory as a martyr. And it coincides with the promotion of a cult to St. Edith. And both of those cults appear to have been promoted by the House of Wessex at a time when England was under severe strain due to Viking attacks. And then, ten years after that, is when Bertfirth finally wrote his account of the killing. And now that you know how slowly that story appears to develop, and the political realities that were involved, it becomes a bit harder to trust Bertfirth outright, doesn't it? Then, about 40 years after that, in the 1040s, so we're now about 70 years after Edward was killed, version C of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle makes a small change to the story of Edward's death. It removes the word off slagen, slain, and replaces it with gemartirad, martyred. So now the Chronicle claims King Edward was martyred. And then, 10 years after that, in the 1050s, we get version D of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and this fully throws its hat into the ring and provides a major revision to this tale. Quote, This year was King Edward slain at eventide at Corfe Gate on the 15th day before the Calends of April. And he was buried at Wareham without any royal honor. No worse deed than this was ever done by the English nation since they first sought the land of Britain. Men murdered him, but God has magnified him. He was in life an earthly king. He is now, after death, a heavenly saint. Him would not his earthly relatives avenge, but his heavenly father has avenged him amply. The earthly homicides would wipe out his memory from the earth, but the avenger above has spread his memory abroad in heaven and in earth. Those who would not bow before his living body now bow on their knees to his dead bones. Now we may conclude that the wisdom of men and their meditations and their counsels are as naught against the appointment of God. In the same year succeeded Athelred Atheling, his brother, to the government. And afterwards, he was very readily and with great joy to the councillors of England, consecrated king at Kingston, end quote. And then, in the entry for the following year, quote, In this year, Elderman Elf Hera fetched the holy king's body from Wareham and bore it with great honor to Shaftesbury, end quote. So now we're seeing details that were previously only recorded in Bertfirth's Life of St. Oswald now being included in the Chronicle as fact. 
and there's no mention that they came from Avida. Furthermore, the scribes weren't content to stop there. They added to that account. Not only did we get that poetic lament, we also get information about the date and location where Edward was killed. But none of that was recorded by Burtfirth, and it's completely unclear where those details actually came from. Now, this version does make mention of the cult of Edward the Martyr. That's why they said things like, those who will not bow before his living body now bow on their knees to his dead bones. So it's possible that the cult's beliefs and ceremonies, which developed over time, served as a source for this addition to the story. But that's honestly just a guess. The other thing that version C makes very clear is that the killers were not King Edward's kinsmen. Now, Edward's kin were condemned in that poetic lament, but not for murder, rather for failing to prosecute those who killed the king. That's what the Chronicle meant when it said, quote, him would not his earthly relatives avenge, end quote. And as you might remember, the son of an elderman might have been one of the killers. And this might be corroborating evidence that the assassins were known, but were simply too powerful to be punished. But regardless, it's important to note that just like with all the other versions of this story, Athelred and Queen Ilthrith were not directly implicated in Edward's murder. But that all changes at the end of the 11th century with the Passio Sancti Edwardi, the Passion of St. Edward. By the time that the anonymous author who wrote the Passio put pen to paper, Edward had been dead for over a century, and now the Normans were ruling over England. And then suddenly we get this new version that claims that Queen Aelfthrith was among the conspirators and that she was complicit in the king's death. And if you thought you knew the story of Edward the Martyr before this podcast, there's a good chance that this is the story you knew of how an evil queen conspired against her stepson, the king, in order to place her own son on the throne in his place. So, is that it? Do we finally have the last piece of the puzzle of Edward's death? Well, it's possible, but there are a couple of huge problems with the Passio. The first is the timeline. This information appears about 100 years after Edward's death. No earlier record includes it. And what's the likelihood that the correct story had managed to stay in circulation all this time, but wasn't recorded in any prior source? The second issue with the Passio is that it's weird. Like, way weirder than you might imagine for something with such a serious Latin title. There are big portions of it that are dedicated to describing what amounts to ghost stories. And in one of these stories, the Passio claims that King Edward himself appeared from beyond the grave to the Abbess of Shaftesbury in 1001, and he demanded that his body be moved to a more prominent spot in the Abbey. Because nothing says saint quite like astrally projecting in order to micromanage your real estate affairs. Anyway, the Passio also claims that King Athelred heard of this ghostly visit from Edward, and he was overjoyed. But he was all wrapped up in trying to fend off the Vikings, so he couldn't handle his brother's burial concerns himself, and instead ordered Bishop Wolfsiga of Sherborne and the Praesul to take care of it. And that bishop is another clue. Because not only does this entry read a bit like an episode of Scooby-Doo, there's also a critical flaw in the details. We know who the Bishop of Sherborne was in 1001, and it wasn't Wolfsiga. In fact... The Passio gets all kinds of details wrong. And given the state of this document, 
I really think it's unlikely that this anonymous writer would be the one to crack the case of who ordered Edward's death when no one else had managed it for over a century. Furthermore, I don't think we should ignore the fact that the first time that we have someone blaming the Anglo-Saxon royal dynasty for the murder of their monarch, the first time that we have a story that basically says, look at these godless savages, is produced from Norman England. And this author wasn't just blaming some random Anglo-Saxon nobles. He or she was directly accusing Queen Aelfrith, the woman who was not only King Athelred's mother, but King Edward the Confessor's grandmother. Not even Canute, who very well may have been promoting the cult of Edward the Martyr on the sly, had stooped so low as to personally accuse the queen of an assassination. And yet, as soon as there's this new dynasty from Normandy, the story adjusts, and it implicates the House of Wessex in kinslaying. That should raise an eyebrow at the least. And that brings us to another account about Edward's death that was written in 1125, nearly 150 years after the death of King Edward. It was written by William of Malmesbury himself. And William claims that Elderman Elf Hera of Mercia was responsible for the king's death. And he believes this because when Elf Hera moved the body from its meager burial at that house of that unimportant person and then translated it to Shaftesbury and then ordered people to make prayers over it regularly, well, it was obvious that he was just reacting to his own guilt. Which I have to say is a pretty big leap for William to take without any additional evidence. And I'm sure it was a total coincidence that suddenly, once England was taken over by the Normans, the stories that William was hearing around the halls of power were characterizing the previous old Anglo-Saxon nobility as a bunch of regicidal finks. I'm sure that was absolute happenstance. Anyway, like the Passio, it looks like William had missed some critical details that might have colored his approach on this story had he done some better research. Because if you went all the way back to the origins of that tale of Edward's reburial by Elfhera, if you went all the way back to Bertforth himself, you would have learned that if Bertforth didn't like a noble, he said so. This guy wasn't shy. And yet Bertforth describes Elfhera as, quote, the glorious elderman, end quote. Not exactly the sort of language he'd use if Elfhera was widely known to be the killer and he was just trying to clear his ledger. So I'm pretty sure William got this one wrong. And the last person from this era to throw his hat into the ring was Henry of Huntingdon. And he was writing in 1129 and 1135. So over 150 years since Edward was killed. And Henry decided to repeat the story that had no basis in the contemporary record. A version that didn't even appear for over a century. A version that also involved a Scooby-Doo ghost story and got a lot of details wrong. But it was the version that made the previous royal dynasty of England look terrible. And that might have appealed to him as he was writing during the reign of King Henry I, and they were potentially looking down the barrel of a succession crisis in the Norman dynasty. And so yeah, Henry sided with Apasio and said that it was Queen Aelfrith's fault, which for some crazy reason, is the most often repeated story of Edward's death. Even to this day, it was this version that I heard when I was growing up. So, what have we learned? What can we possibly know about Edward and the cult that grew out of his death? Unfortunately, we can't know very much. 
but I think we can make some educated guesses from the way the stories developed and from what we know about the environment that they grew out of. I think it's quite clear that King Edward was violently killed. It's possible that this happened as Bertfirth said, and that he was stabbed to death while on horseback. And given how he had a reputation for being cruel and violent to those closest to him, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it went down. But there's no indication that 10-year-old Athelred, nor his mother, Queen Ilfrith, were actually involved in this murder. Instead, it looks like it was probably what Bertfirth said it was. Some nobles saw an opportunity and took it. In fact, I wouldn't even be surprised if this was a spur-of-the-moment thing. Like someone just hit their breaking point while enduring one of the king's violent outbursts, and then things spun out of control. That could certainly explain why the contemporary record describes this as a killing rather than a murder. But again, since this is such a popular story, I want to reiterate that from my reading of the sources, I can't find anything implicating Queen Ilfthrith, except for a strange bit of supernatural fan fiction that developed over a century later by an anonymous author during the Norman era. Now, as for how the body was handled after the killing, I do find it plausible that given the state of the kingdom, because it was in crisis at this point, and the way the king had been behaving, because he wasn't exactly making any friends, he very well might have just been hastily dumped in a shallow grave. I mean, why give him any honors? And as for the story of the body getting reburied, well, I think that's highly likely. And the reason why I think that is because Athelred wasn't crowned for over a year. That delay is significant, especially given the state of the kingdom. And it makes you wonder why that happened. Because Athelred was the only living son of King Edgar, and as such, he had a clear claim to the throne. But at the same time, there was that whole business of how the previous king, his brother, had been killed. And if his body had just been dumped somewhere, like in the outskirts of Wareham, as some of the tales suggest, you can imagine that that may have been a sticking point for some of the members of the Watanagamot. I mean, even though Edward was apparently the worst, regicide and an irreligious burial was an unsettling state of affairs. And the nobles might have wanted to restore a sense of normalcy and proper ritual, if for no other reason than to protect the majesty of the crown. And that could explain why we suddenly have this story of Edward getting a new, proper burial, potentially in late February of 979. It's also important to note that Edward wasn't just put anywhere. His body was taken to Shaftesbury, which was an abbey that was founded by King Alfred the Great and was the site of the royal cult of Elf Gifu, who was Edward and Athelred's grandmother. If you wanted to put an end to the conflict over succession, Burying Edward there wasn't a bad way to go about it. And, assuming the records are accurate, on May 4th of 979, just a couple months after that reburial, Athelred was finally crowned king. Which I think is really interesting timing. Something else I find highly convincing is that when England really begins to look like it's in some serious trouble with the Vikings, people began to develop concerns about divine retribution. And it was in that environment that the cult of Edward was finally established and promoted. And if it was connected to kingdom-wide instability and fears of divine retribution, that certainly would explain why it didn't develop for so long, because things hadn't been bad enough to merit extreme measures yet. It also could explain why, even though Edward was apparently resting at Shaftesbury, he wasn't mentioned in the charter from 984. 
But if he was just a bad king who reigned for a handful of years before getting himself killed, well, would you really want to mention him in a charter? Maybe not. But six years later, when things were getting really bad and they were working to promote the cult, likely as a way to curry favor with an angry god, well, now his connection with Shaftesbury was worthy of mention. All of that makes sense to me. It also makes sense that as new rival dynasties began to take root, that cult, which was basically making the case that the House of Wessex was home to revered martyrs and wizards, suddenly got a revision to that narrative. I mean, sure, the old dynasty were so godly they were practically Gandalf, but those were the old days, and things had changed. Because the royal dynasty that Canute and William were dealing with were the descendants of a kinslayer. That seems like an entirely plausible political move to me. And as for the miracles that the cult claimed were happening at Shaftesbury, I can't say whether or not they were actually happening. But one thing I am certain of is that any miracles that might have happened weren't the result of Edward. And as such, I'm positive that they can't be used as proof that he was a saint. Why? Well, because I know something they didn't. The body that was believed to be King Edward's was exhumed by archaeologists in the 20th century. And what they found wasn't the body of a 16-year-old, which is what you'd expect if it was King Edward. Instead, they found the bones of someone in his late 20s or early 30s. Almost as if the people who'd been tasked with finding Edward's body couldn't. And so they just grabbed poor Unferth from a potter's field. And if Unferth had recently died... That certainly would explain Edward's alleged vampiric appearance, because it was actually a fresh body. As for the miracles, like I said, I don't know if they actually happened, but I think it's pretty clear that if they did, it was the result of Unferth. And with that in mind, maybe I should call this episode the Passio Sancti Unferthy. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Reddit, pretty much everywhere. And you can find links to all our communities in the communities section of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. One gold, one gold